0: This afternoon, we've got two two major themes. One is external critiques, and the other is um, uh, users' and educators' perspectives. Last Thursday, we had internal critiques. People, psychotherapists, psychoanalysts, looking at different notions of critical. With regard to external critiques, we have Adrian Cocking and Anastasius Gaitanidis. Adrian Adrian's come specially from Toronto, just for this conference, (laughs) And it's a psychotherapist there. Yeah. And uh, what are you laughing at? It's, um, yeah. hey,
1: hey. And, uh, it's okay. Feel free to laugh.
0: Yeah. Okay. It's true. It's
1: true. It, it is true. true. I am from Canada.
0: Yeah. And you came here. I came
1: here just to see you guys. Yeah, that's it.
0: Okay. Uh, and Adrian's sort of challenging us, I think, in terms of when we're working as psychotherapists, what, what we think of as, as kind of good relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So, over to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Del.
1: So, as Del said, I'm going to be talking about um, my chapter in Del's new book. Um, I'm sure there are still copies left, so feel free. Um, Yeah, so, first off, I'd like to acknowledge um, my co-author on this chapter, uh, Mari Ruti, who couldn't make it today. Um, She was an incredible collaborator, and uh, without her, I probably wouldn't be here. So, I just wanted to give a little shout-out to Mari. Um, So, today... I'm going to be talking about love. More specifically, I'd like to explore how, as therapists, our biases around love and coupled relationships can adversely affect our clients. For example, do we use romantic relationships as a yardstick for healthy psychological functioning? And to what degree do we see coupling as necessary and inevitable in our Western culture? So to flush out this concept and give you a bit of an example, um, I'd like to start with uh, a situation. Um Now, if you will, picture a patient in the initial assessment session of psychoanalytic treatment, and the topic of relationships comes up. I'm not currently in a relationship, says the patient. But you have been previously, the analyst inquires. Yes, I've actually had quite a few relationships, replies the patient. Well, says the analyst, in that case we have nothing to worry about. So now this conversation seems innocent enough. The analyst appears to be reassuring the patient that, he has, that he's not pathologizing her for being single. But I think if we look a little more closely, the analyst could be making quite a few assumptions. For example, he is basing the patient's eligibility for productive analysis on the fact that she has proved herself capable of romantic relationships in the past, number one. Number two, he may also be assuming that she, because she is not currently in a relationship, her previous attempts have failed, And that most importantly, she is in analysis with the current goal of being in a successful relationship eventually. And maybe the analyst can help her fulfill this wish. Now, at this point, the analyst may not realize that the patient is actually thinking something else altogether. Let's dive inside her head. So what would he say if I told him I actually don't want to be in a relationship right now? He'd probably think I'm crazier than I actually am. I know, he's going to think that I can't let go of past hurts, that I'm putting up my defenses, that I can't expose my true self to others, but the truth is I'd just rather be single right now. Is that so strange? So in the end, the patient decides not to say anything. And as you can see, that kind of experience would shut down a number of therapeutic avenues and could adversely affect treatment. Most importantly, in this example, the patient realizes that saying no to love is not really an option, particularly in Western culture. So this is where I'm going to bring queer theory into my argument. Um, So I'm framing the argument through a queer theoretical lens, specifically because of queer theory's continued efforts to examine this ideology of love, Um, and also to unsettle societal norms in general, kind of doing a more general critique. Um, In this case, queer theory is asking us to look at our own assumptions about relationships. Do we define healthy relationships as monogamous and permanent? To what extent do we expect clients to work through their relationship issues patiently, consistently, with the aim of preserving the couple form? If so, psychoanalysis and psychotherapy may actually find themselves contradicting some of the key arguments of queer theory that I'm going to articulate later on. Um, and because the term queer is so inclusive, it actually allows us to show how this overvalorization of relationality affects individuals of various sexual orientations. And specifically, and this is sort of more my area of research, there's a growing body of work on how singles, both queer and straight, are discriminated against in our society, while the couple form is sort of upheld as the mode of relating par excellence. Now queer critic Michael Cobb has even begun attaching the letter S to the LGBTQ <coughs> acronym, that's the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer acronym, just to highlight this need for further cultural investigation into the plight that singles face. I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, so the aim of my talk in general is to encourage psychoanalysts and psychotherapists to become more critical of our assumptions regarding relationality. Now this means the possibility, this means considering the possibility that psychic well-being may not always rely on thriving, and in particular romantic relationships. Now in saying this, I don't want to downplay the importance of healthy care and relationships during the healing process, whether they're familial, friendship-based, romantic... Um, And I do understand that many patients do seek analysis and and psychotherapy because they would like to actually improve the quality of their relationships. But what I really want to critique here is the popular notion that without a romantic relationship, your life is somehow intrinsically incomplete. So I'm going to look at a bit of theory now. Um, So again, I'm asking for more sensitivity to those clients that do not wish to follow what feminist philosopher Sarah Ahmed calls dominant happiness scripts of Western society. Now, she explains that because the goal of happiness is so widespread, dominant cultural ideas of what happiness really is can quite literally shape the directions our lives are going. And you guessed it, society tells us that one of the most effective indicators of our happiness is our ability to sustain enduring romantic relationships, um, and married monogamy in particular, Marriage is sold as the pinnacle of happiness, backed by numerous studies finding that married people are generally happy, happier than unmarried people. I'm sure you've heard some of these, some of these studies. As Ahmed explains, quote, the finding is also a recommendation. Get married and you will be happier. The public investment in happiness is an investment in a very particular and very narrow model of the good, end quote. And this model when you're thinking about it, 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 I think it excludes many people and it blocks other sort of relational and, and or um, so, uh, solitary possibilities um, in terms of uh, lifestyle. In fact, our commitment to these dominant happiness scripts is so strong that when this script does not deliver its promise of happiness, we don't actually question the script itself, say the marriage script. Instead, we just assume that we've actually failed. Now, Lauren Berlant describes this predicament I just uh, articulated as one of cruel optimism. Now, this is the stubborn, often irrational belief that social arrangements and ways of life that actually hurt us will eventually pay off and make us happy in the end if we just stick to them. Cruel optimism maintains the fantasy that our relentless efforts will bring us love, success, happiness, everything that we deserve, even when they're actually extremely unlikely to do so in reality. And so to think of this, an easy example would be the American dream, the good life that few, if any, actually can obtain. Um, now Butler, Judith Butler, suggested that at the core of this attachment to these futile ways of life lies our desire to feel normal and to feel accepted and truly belong to the world that we live in, which makes sense. We're all kind of crazy that on some level. And even if these fantasies keep disappointing us, we cling to them anyway because it's so, such a widespread belief. Now, to clarify and and just make this, make this quite clear, uh, I'm not saying that there are no happy marriages. Obviously, there are many. Um, I simply wish to point out that for many people, marriage doesn't always prove to be the perfect union as promised by our society, and can in some cases, as I'm sure you know, cause a great deal of misery. Now, one of the paradoxes of our society is that we're taught that marriage will right all the wrongs in our lives, heal our past wounds, grant enduring satisfaction. But as you know, the reality can be somewhat different. Um, Petty fights, hurt feelings, repetitive routines, dwindling sex lives. Um, These are just some of the things um, that characterize many marriages. Um, And little things, you know, who forgot to put the toilet seat down, become these huge emotional trigger points. Um, and when these couples aren't bickering each other, they're often spending countless hours working through their issues, often in therapy, where the therapist playing umpire to all these sort of domestic, domestic uh, little tips. Uh, and somehow this is considered normal to the point that if we actually question the value of this mode of life, we're told grow up, expect less from your marriages, lower your expectations. So the question remains: if the rewards of marriage are frequently so meager why is society so invested in selling us this idea of the good life of what of what it's supposed to be now according to some social theorists the reason is actually primarily economic critics such as gramsci marcuse foucault have all proposed that this idealization of marriage is essential to western capitalist society because it simply facilitates a smooth running economy Now, Gramsci notes in particular um, that American industrialist Henry Ford was the first to recognize the socioeconomic benefits of marriage, as he understood that a stable domestic arrangement often translated into a very stable and efficient worker. So, he capitalized on this by demanding proof of marital status as a precondition to higher wages. And Marcuse, in turn, argued that Western societies are governed by what he called the performance principle, And now this is an ideal productivity that asks us to sacrifice a large portion of our pleasure for the sake of the economic machine. And one of the ways this is accomplished is by restricting sexuality to the confines of the marital bed, with citizens safely recharging at home instead of, say, cruising sex clubs till four in the morning, something like that. Um, Along the same lines, Foucault proposed that marriage is one of the biopolitical tools of producing compliant subjects. The kind of subjects who are relatively reliable, responsible, and are likely to do what society expects of them. So from this perspective, and considering those those theoreticians, no modern institution tames people more effectively than marriage. So now with that theoretical backdrop in mind, I'd like to put forth an idea that might seem counterintuitive and a little bit controversial... But this is that most of the prominent queer critics of the last 15 years have all condemned the mainstream gay and lesbian movement's attempts to secure gay marriage rights in the USA. Now, these critics understand that marriage often affords quite a few social benefits, but these critics see gay marriage as a narrow political agenda that reproduces the core values of neoliberal capitalism, including how it privileges one type of relationship, married monogamy, over all others, These critics argue that social benefits should be granted to everyone, regardless of their relationship status. The fight for gay marriage also privileges certain members of the queer community, while excluding others, for example, poor, racialized, and or immigrant queers, just to name a few. Um, Now here, in this situation, we see certain members of the mainstream gay and lesbian community adopting heteronormative standards of monogamous relationships, and they're thus creating a very exclusive homonormativity in the community that other... Queers would feel obligated to follow. Um, Now, these queer critics they not only um, accuse wealthy, mostly white gays and lesbians of using marriage to buy their way into normality at the expense of others, but they also question the desire to want to make it in the dominant culture in the first place. Now, they look at these ideals of success and individualism and try to uh, problematize them um, because they don't seem to appear to be the only route to happiness. They also blind us to racism, sexism, classism, all these other isms. The reality is, structural inequalities keep the American dream, as we know, unattainable for most. Uh, And from a queer theoretical perspective, gays and lesbians who campaign for marriage rights are in a way caught up in this cruel optimism that I was talking about before, uh, misguided in their hope that this achievement of marriage, regardless of the fact that it is a patriarchal, state-controlled institution, will make up for years of historical discrimination. Ironically, it's actually because in a way that the gay community um, has managed to make queers sound just like straight people that it has made such huge political strides. But for queer critics, this is a very short-sighted victory because it undermines more radical efforts to gain social justice. So uh, I'm going to move on to what I, um, Mari and I talk about in the chapter, is the cult of relationality. Um, so, given everything that I've just articulated, what are the implications of this for psychotherapeutic contexts? Well, if psychoanalysis and psychotherapy continue to valorize monogamy and promote enduring relationships as the hallmark of psychic health, then they're essentially just promoting heteronormative and homonormative versions of the so-called good life. And... I feel that this could be very damaging to the clinical experiences of those who simply don't adhere to this view. Um, They want to live a different kind of lifestyle. And I'm going to use the example of single folk here. Um, Now, this issue is more obvious in the treatment of singles, and these are both queer and straight singles, than of coupled up gays and lesbians for the reasons that therapists these days are very unlikely, or more unlikely, to condemn their patients for being queer. Whereas this... Therapeutic cult of relationality can lead therapists, however subtly, to blame their clients for failing to obtain an enduring romantic relationship. Now, I'd like to make it very clear that I'm not equating the struggles of queer and straight singles because obviously queer subjects experience a much greater degree of stigmatization, so I just want to make that very clear. I would, however, like to point out that these pro-couple sentiments are one way that heteronormativity and indeed, as I said before, homonormativity can slip under the radar in therapeutic settings. So I'll give you a few examples of this. Um, Now let's look a bit more at singles. What makes the negative statements about singles so insidious is that they're framed as attempts to help people avoid misfortune and unhappiness. Many clinicians and researchers equate singleness with pathological loneliness and isolation. And I'm sure this is not the first time you've heard that. Now take the following statement. Now this is from Yalom and Lynch's well-known book on group psychotherapy. They say, quote, Contemporary research documents the pain and the adverse consequences of loneliness. There is, for example, persuasive evidence that the rate for virtually every major cause of death is significantly higher for the lonely, the single, the divorced, and the widowed. Social isolation is as much a risk factor for early mortality as obvious physical risk factors, such as smoking and obesity, End quote. So I don't know if you've noticed, but in this passage, the lonely and the single are virtually synonymous Uh, Now, similarly, in Sue Johnson's EFT book for couples, hold me tight, I'm I'm sure many of you are familiar with it, she writes, quote, Historians long ago observed that in the death camps of World War II, the unit of survival was the pair, not the solitary individual. It's long been known, too, that married men and women generally live longer than do their single peers. Loneliness raises blood pressure to the point where the risk of heart attack and stroke is doubled. Emotional isolation is a more dangerous health risk than smoking or high blood pressure. So again, in this quote, we see the facile sliding from the single to the lonely, and the couple fares better than, better than the single, again. Now, these statements certainly don't go unnoticed by readers, whether they're um, citizens, therapeutic professionals, um, and in the word of uh, queer critic Michael Cobb, they quote, make you want to run to the nearest available partner and pop the question, end quote, because coupling appears to be the sole antidote to the threat of loneliness, and I've definitely felt that. <laughs> um... Although sometimes envied for their freedom and carefree lifestyle, and we've heard this before, singles more so seem to symbolize the disgrace of undesirability and unhappiness in our society. Being single is a problem, one that can be solved by coupling up as soon as possible to avoid the dangers um, of loneliness that I just articulated. Now, as Cobb states, quote, no one is really supposed to be single. They're all just waiting for the chance to find that special someone, sometime soon, end quote. Now, because our culture is so geared toward enduring intimate relationships, being single is not actually seen as a legitimate lifestyle choice with its own distinct possibilities. Rather, it's a transitory state, one that must be overcome, ideally through marriage. Bella DePaulo, um who has written extensively on this topic, on the stigmatization of singles, uh, she observes that because fewer people now see marriage as an essential component to their lives, so fewer people are maybe choosing to get married, our society seems to be engaged in an almost frantic effort to convince people that marriage is, quote, utterly and uniquely transformational. Marriage transforms the immature single person into a mature spouse, end quote. Now, in the therapeutic context, this is very important, promoting marriage as the cure for pathological singleness can occur very easily. Now, take, for example, the introduction to Johnson's book, Hold Me Tight, in which she describes the inevitability of her falling in love and marrying despite her initial belief that romantic love was just a fantasy. Now when clinicians themselves articulate this kind of sentiment, they help contribute to this naturalization of marriage, making it the only legitimate way to go about our love lives. Johnson also relies on naturalized evolutionary accounts of love to prove the human need for emotional attachment. Now, we all know, especially research has shown, shown that secure attachment is crucial to mental health. However, this view of love transforms long-term coupling into a quasi-biological human need, ignoring evidence for the socially constructed natures of our romantic ideals. In addition, scholar Jeff Chauvin has also found that psychoanalysis has a history of confounding social customs with developmental milestones and measures of normality, Often equating lifelong coupled relationships with psychological health. Indeed, coupling is so normalized that it leaves us with the impression that, quote, people without a stable relationship are wandering adrift with open wounds and shivering in their sleep, end quote, That's to in more, as DePaul and Morris jokingly put it. Now, as far as we continue to rely on naturalized views of enduring romantic relationships, it will be difficult to envision other versions of the good life or, as we could say, alternative happiness scripts. This naturalization of love may explain such widespread acceptance of the mantra that good relationships take work. I'm sure you've all heard that. Since enduring relationships seems to be the only natural way to go about our love lives, many people are willing to work at their relationships to an extreme degree. The idea that marriage takes hard work is so prevalent that it's almost impossible to talk about it without raising the language of minds and factories. We work at intimacy, at getting along at not getting on each other's nerves, at doing what we're supposed to do, etc. As critic Laura Kipnis observes, one of the most amazing feats of our social order is that we've actually made working for love sound so admirable, as if it's something we're supposed to all naturally want to do. And again, the single person who perhaps contently dwells in solitude is considered way more distressed than a couple who is constantly trying to work through their relationship issues. Clinical settings, particularly, may find themselves prone to the Protestant work ethic as their default approach to relationships. After all, if the patient is not working to improve the relationship, what is there left to do? Now, starting to imagine a viable answer may require that psychoanalysts and psychotherapists not only recognize a variety of relational modes as legitimate, but also entertain <coughs> the possibility that for quite a few patients, non-relational ways of living may be equally or even more important, and they might find that incredibly fulfilling. There's also something to be said for acknowledging that people in our society tend to be overly invested in love to begin with. Many are so centered on relationships that they actually neglect other aspects of their life, with the result that a clinical focus on such a rigid type of relationality could greatly hinder a patient's development. Now, it seems to me that those who have a realistic uh, sense of, uh, of love's unreliable nature and who see relationships as merely one part of their lives, are way better equipped than those who have been lulled into this false complacency by soulmate mythology. Working for love may make sense, but I think it makes sense when we are willing to work for other things as well. Now during this talk, I've attempted to illustrate that insofar as clinicians endorse society's key happiness scripts, they can pathologize queer and single clients, thereby denying them an effective therapeutic experience. And queer theory holds a great deal of potential for unsettling conventional therapeutic practices because it demands a serious rethinking of relationality. It also offers clinicians the insight that certain clients may not always be interested in our society's success narratives. Maybe instead of focusing solely on success, we could look at what failing at these scripts might look like. We might be surprised. Thanks. Thanks.
0: Adrian, thank you very much for that. Um, our, our next speaker looking at some of external critiques is Anastasius, Anastasius Gaitanidis, oh, yeah. who is uh, about to be wired up. Um, Sorry. And, Anastasius is uh, at Roehampton, is a member of the Research Centre for Therapeutic Education. He's also uh, at the site for Contemporary Psychoanalysis. And... Uh, he doesn't come from Toronto. He comes from Winstable. I don't know what else I'm going to have to tell you until he's wired up um, there. And he's uh, on his way to the new school in New York. Thank Anastasius, you. tell us about critical theory.
2: Thank you. Can you hear me? All right, yeah. Thank you. Um, yes, I've been, uh, I've been working with, uh, with Dell for the last five years. It's been... It's been fantastic that I was able, he invited me to contribute a chapter in the book um, uh, on uh, critical theory and psychotherapy. Um, I want to to talk today a little bit about about how the term critical theory came about um, and uh, how it was coined as a term in the 1920s by a group of theorists who collectively came to be known as critical theorists, or the Frankfurt School, these theorists include uh, um, Mar- uh, Herbert Marcuse, Max Hochheimer, Theodor Adorno, and Walter Benjamin, uh, amongst them. And the school uh, was um, had strong Marxist leanings, but also incorporated an in- interdisciplinary focus. In terms of its approach combining psychological, sociological, anthropological and other sort of, uh, uh, disciplines. But the, the existence of criticism, of critique is, it goes back, it starts with, with Im- Immanuel Kant and uh, the idea of uh, to be critical means, you know, that that's the only way in a way that you can provide some sense of, uh, uh knowledge regarding regarding social or individual situations. And most importantly, in Marx himself, who believed that we have to be ruthlessly critical of anything existing at the moment. Uh, And I think following in this tradition, the the, uh, theorists of uh, of, uh, the Frankfurt School, who came to be known collectively as critical theorists, they decided to uh, to be uh, ruthlessly critical of every sort of sociopolitical and psychological trend that existed at the time. But most importantly, what we need to realize is that their theories came about as a result of a failure, a failure for um, what Marx predicted will be, and Marxists at the time predicted will be um, a revolutionary practice and the change of the world as we know it. Uh, and the fact that this was not happening, and they came face to face with uh, the, uh, the not simply revolution was not taking place as uh, Marx and Marxists were predicting, due to the increased impoverishment of the working class and the unity of the working class against uh, against the capitalist system. But on top of that, you know, the, there was the the outbreak of the First World War. Uh, there was. Uh, the, the the Russian Revolution turned with Stalin into a, a brutalism of oppression, and they they were facing with exactly the opposite results from what, what Marx and Marxists were predicting in terms of social change. So critical theory came as a result and as a reaction to to this sense of failure. Uh, I think the situation today is a little bit different. I think. What I noticed more and more uh, is not simply the sense of uh, the radical left's failure to actually actualize the dreams and uh, possibilities of social change, but a sense of exhaustion. We are exhausted. We are tired. We cannot go on, and you know, and we need to actually uh, find a way of going despite the fact that we can't go on anymore. And this is something, actually, I, I, I realized that it was theorized by, both by Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno uh, in the 1920s, and especially after, uh, by Theodore Adorno after their experience of uh, the worst uh, sort of nightmare that humanity had experienced uh, up to his time, that of the Holocaust. So how do you uh, go on? When you can't go on anymore. How do you move on? When there is, when you feel absolutely exhausted and tired. What do you do? Or do you do, do you need to do something? And this is exactly what the Frankfurt School theorists came to, to, uh, to discuss. And in many respects, this is the question we face here today. How do we go on after our possibilities, after, you know, our radical left dreams, disappeared after we experienced such many catastrophes, so many disappointments, so many failures that the possibility of even dreaming of a different reality is becoming increasingly impossible. How do you dream of the possible when impossibility knocks at your door? And this is where I believe the, the Frankfurt School theories, the critical theories have become increasingly important for our time. I think I think in order to understand that, we need to understand that for them, um, how, how, how we begin, how we begin to understand the current, the history, history as, as, as a continuity and history as a, as, as, as a form of a narrative is to start with the catastrophic. For them, history is a permanent catastrophe. It's a catastrophe that keeps happening all the time it keeps happening under the guise of progress. That we keep hearing everything is getting better where well, actually everything is getting worse. And we keep hearing that everything is done for our good uh, and for for our benefit and our, uh, our progression when fundamentally what is happening is that everything is, 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 is actually conspiring against us. So... For, for Walter Benjamin and Theodore Adorno, there is a very real uh, understanding of history as a permanent catastrophe, which is in direct conflict with any Enlightenment conception or kind of progressive, co- progressivist conception of history as something that leads to greater freedom and autonomy. For them, as Walter Benjamin concretely put it, there is no document of civilization which is not at the same time a document of barbarism. Uh, this is very close to Freud's conception in civilization and its discontents that says that, you know, civilization, instead of increasing uh, happiness, is increasing unhappiness due to its uh, super-egoic violence that imposes on the libidinal kernel of individuals. And it's this idea of the genealogy of morals that are present Precious moral codes are based on a long-forgotten history of past immorality and violence. So when you see progress, when you see development, when you see advancement, what they point is not the positive, progressivistic discourse of history, but quite the opposite. Where is the negative? Where is the violence? What has been sacrificed? What has been killed in the act of progress? And this is, this is where the discourse of history as articulated from the point of the vanquished and not from the point of the victors. From the point of those who suffer the violence and have been excluded, and not from the point of those who want to present history as a constant advancement. And this is something that uh, uh, that is, is, is very important in terms of understanding uh, where we are at the moment. Now According to this perspective, the idea of a plan for a better world that manifests itself in history and unites, unites it is completely mistaken. The only notion of a unified, continuous, universal history that can be legitimately construed is a negative one. History is continuous in its, catast- in its catastrophic, catastrophic discontinuity. What Adorno said is that no universal history leads from savagery to humanitarianism, but there is one leading from the slingshot to the mechadone bomb, to the atomic bomb. So there is continuity, but in terms of, <coughs> of catastrophic discontinuity. Even the development of technologies, which is usually employed as evidence for the existence of positive historical progress, should be viewed as contributing to the continuous expansion of the destructive structures of domination. In other words, true progress has not yet begun for Adorno and Benjamin because we are still living in prehistory. History History proper has not started yet. History which will be free of domination and oppression. History which doesn't compulsively repeat its prehistoric catastrophic relations to both each other and nature. Beginning with the first human being's destruction of other animals and each other, human history has always involved violence and destruction in the form of advanced civilization. The increase in technological power signifies an increase in violent destructiveness. It is not an accident that in a century in which the advanced development of technology and means of production which have allowed for global peace, fair distribution of wealth, and the end of starvation and deprivation, the greatest uh, civilatory break in history has taken place, the Holocaust. In the midst of one of the most technologically and culturally advanced countries in the world, 20th century Germany, a barbaric ideology of racist superiority created an apocalyptic system of selection and extinction that led to the industrially organized mass killings of millions of human beings. Yet, it is neither that the potential for totalitarian practices, racist killings and genocides has actually diminished currently, or that the global powers have decided to give up the means of total annihilation, their arsenal and weapons of mass destruction. Everyday acts of genocide are also being committed in the normative social spaces of public schools, clinics, emergency rooms, hospital wards, nursing homes, courtrooms, prisons, detention centers, and public morgues, which reduce all these others to non-persons, illegal aliens, and terrorizing monsters who contaminate our public spaces and thus need to be violently excluded or subtly, subtly and silently exterminated. It seems that this destructive historical path has never been abandoned. There is something obsessive in the ways, boring uh, uh, Freud's term of repetition compulsion, in the ways in which we continue to pursue our own and others' destruction in our very attempts to secure our self-preservation, especially if we think of our ruthless appropriation of the world's resources. And the fact that we can discuss and address this objective tendency, on the one hand, seems to indicate that there is enlightened criticism and awareness, but on the other, this seems to have no effect at all. Despite, or perhaps because of the abstract character of our awareness, of our situation, we are still unable to arrest the catastrophic course of world history. It feels as if we are trapped within a historical nightmare from which we cannot awake. To paraphrase Joyce's famous line from Ulysses, although we temporarily seek to escape from this nightmare by repressing the memories of past traumas, we are still haunted by the ghosts of all those who have died, who constantly seek justice for all of the cruelty and mindless suffering that they had to endure. To quote Marx, the tradition of all the dead generations weighs like a nightmare on the brace of the living. However, we cannot simply awake, awake from this nightmare by deciding, like, like Marx, to let the dead bury the dead. If we do not listen to the persistent, persistent wailing and interminable lamentation, if we decide to either ignore or forget them, then we are bound to repeat the traumas of the past and condemn ourselves and the dead to the never-ending confinement, the purgatory of catastrophic history. Now, of course, this depiction of history as permanent catastrophe, this constant sort of lamentation of of the catastrophic past that cannot quite be uh, redeemed without our attempts to remember, are hallmarks of the Frankfurt School. But there is also you know, an attempt currently to to try to replace this sort of act of remembrance, not to forget, to keep, in a way, in touch with the suffering, both of the past generations and the present ones. And this attempt is, you know, this sense of pseudo-immediacy, to keep ourselves busy, to keep ourselves constantly exhibiting and... uh, Uh, life logging ourselves to the external world there is no space to rest there is no space to think there is no space to remember we like Kafka's key characters we are the anonymous ruthless persons always in search of a community but unable to find it because we are trapped by a form of rationalized lucid madness the world of modern administration Even worse is that the hope for a promised land has evaporated. This goal is unattainable because it is the suffering physical world we are dealing with rather than a transcendental real. To the extent that the Frankfurt School vision is true, that is to the degree that the administered world is totalized, we are like Gregor Samsa in Metamorphosis, Kafka's Metamorphosis, who wakes up from an uneasy dream only to realize that he's been transformed into a gigantic insect caught in the web of an administrative spider to whose power he cannot help but aspire to become. Perhaps the only remedy for this negative, totally administered life is like to embrace the positivity of death, a solution that echoes Heidegger's proposal to fully come to terms with the supreme ontological truth that we are beings towards death. For Adorno... And for other theories, however, there is a problem with this solution. We cannot choose to die or even accept it as our ultimate existential possibility because we are not aware of the fact that under the current social conditions we are no longer really alive. As he puts it, the very people who burst with proofs of vitality could easily be taken for prepared corpses for whom the news of the not quite successful disease has been withheld for reasons of population policy. Moreover, we cannot embrace death as our possibility because we can no longer properly die. Our death does not belong to us since it is now controlled by the totally administered world. We simply become functionaries, we can be exchanged as irrelevantly by the system as by uh, as uh, as uh, as anyone else. It comes as no surprise, therefore, that we are currently extremely fascinated by the figure of the zombie, the undead dead. We are condemned to roam the earth without being able to either really live or properly die. This is echoed in Adorno's reading of Beckett, in which he argues that Beckett's major plays do not deal with the inevitability of death, but with the fact that even after all is over, After the destruction of all our cherished cultural values and beliefs in historical progress, that is, after Auschwitz, one has to go on. We are stranded in this abysmal region between life and death uh, that the Nazi extermination camps have enacted with a vengeance. Beckett's character run, leap, tumble, grow restless, feel awkward, brawl, crave a glance and handshake, a, a caress, but are left so unsatisfied by fate by love, even by pity. Although they contemplate the possibility of taking their own life, they can never actually do it, and this is not because they are afraid of death. They are totally consumed by the fear that death could miscarry. They call forth pity and fear, and pass through pity and fear so as to achieve catharsis, only to realize that catharsis is impossible, and their life is nothing but an animated wasteland. As Adorno bo- puts it, Beckett has given the only appropriate reaction to the situation of the concentration camp <clears throat> that he never names, as if it lay under an image ban. What is is like a concentration camp. It is for this reason that Adorno believes that whatever attempts we make to positivize, to actually provide an a busy, active alternative. To the, to our post-Holocaust reality, it will necessarily misfire. Here I would like to quote Beckett himself in an interview that he gave with Tom Driver. He says, one cannot speak anymore of being, or of activity, or of being in time. One must speak only of the mess. And the mess for Beckett is so overwhelming that it overflows into This is why he breaks with Joyce, who is still trying to find the form that he can impose upon the catastrophic chaos of history. Beckett does not try to find this form. Instead, he enacts an aesthetics of failure. But this aesthetics of failure does not only aspire to fail. That is, it is not nihilistic. It is a legacy of action that silently screams that things should be otherwise. Such nihilism implies the opposite of an identification with the nothing. It is a nihilism which is redemptive in the specific sense that you know, Adorno presents. We need to view things from the standpoint of redemption, which is impossible to think at the moment, and yet this impossibility must be comprehended for the sake of the possible. To offer a picture of a positive reconciliation with the world will be actually to create, to transform itself from zombies into vampires. That is to say, creatures who derive the power from knowing that they are already dead and survive by sucking the life out of human beings. This, this will conspire with the very forces that resulted in the concentration camps. This is why Adorno insists that the real nihilists are not the writers like Beckett, but are those active Nihilists who oppose Nihilism with the more and more faded positivities and through this conspire with all the meanness and finally with the destructive principle. Now, now this is, how this can apply to psychotherapy? First of all, it's quite pessimistic, isn't it? (laughs) Just a bit. Just a bit. Now, you see, this is, this is what I think is, is being happening, and uh, I'll divert a little bit from the text to finish. I think more and more I, I hear calls for action, a- action, activity. Uh, we're trying to avoid our exhaustion, and I try to avoid the loss and the catastrophes that are haunting us by simply saying, oh, we must do something about it. And Sometimes the best thing you can do is just rest. Take time. Think. What is happening? What is going on? Why am I feeling that way? This is what we do in therapy. When our, our patients, our clients come to the room, you know, what they want is actually tell me what to do so as to get better. You know, I feel exhausted, I feel tired, I feel that, you know, but I need actually to reinforce my defenses. I need to go back to work. I need it. And actually, you know, you don't provide the solution, you don't try to. Alter the negative, negative thoughts into the positive ones to create an atmosphere of happiness and, you know, and to leave the exhaustion. You actually stay with it. You provide a space where the person is able to think of what is happening. The space for negativity to grow and develop is, if, if we can accuse Adorno and Benjamin and Freud for pessimism, we can only accuse them because You know, in the pessimism, there is a secret optimism. Optimism that the pessimist will contemplate it for an impossible position. For the position of a future redemption. Thank Thank you.
0: I was just reminding me that there's a reading of Civilization at tomorrow at the Freud Museum, starting at one o'clock. So, how to respond to uh, those external uh, uh, critiques? Uh, we're fortunate having Julie, Julie Walsh here. Uh, She's a founder and convener of the Psychoanalysis Across the Disciplines Network at the University of Warwick, uh, where she also convenes the British Sociological Association's Sociology Psychoanalysis and Psychosocial Study Group. Over to you, Julie. Thank you.
3: Am I being picked up well enough? Can I be heard? Yeah? Great. Okay. Um. In offering a response to the two papers that we've just heard, and I should say that I've um, framed my, I've founded my response on the chapters that are in the book. Uh, I think we should keep in mind two ideas. First of all, the notion of the possible, and then the idea of an ethics and indeed an aesthetics of failure. We've heard both of these ideas put to work differently in Anastasios's and in Adrian's papers. In terms of psychotherapy being a contemporary clinical discipline, why on earth would we expect the prospect of failure, even failing differently or with Beckett still in mind failing better, to be a palatable prospect for today's potential patients? Increasingly, I suspect, patients, or maybe you'd prefer to call them clients, can come along to therapy with their own lists of goals, objectives and targets to reach in the name of something like self-betterment or self actualization As difficult as they are to meet, these targets are also difficult to dislodge. And the patient who takes herself as the object of her own audit culture, exhibiting a tireless commitment to self-auditing and self-evaluation, is unlikely to regard failure as an attractive option. So... The notion that psychotherapeutic success might be the development of a better relationship to failure is one to take seriously. It resonates, I think, with the modesty of the Freudian therapeutic promise, namely the transformation of hysterical misery into common unhappiness. If, at bottom, and it's an if, therapeutic work remains in pursuit of something called happiness, then our present cultural conditions certainly make the Freudian variety look a little queer. Let me consider the first paper first, then. What we've heard in Adrian's paper, which, as he said, was a collaboration with Mari Ruti, is an interrogation of the norms of so-called relationship success. How these norms get established, who they serve, which modes of relating and possibilities for living they sanction and which they marginalise or even make impermissible from the perspective of certain prevalent cultural scripts. Stability, longevity, monogamy, these are the values, or in fact the biases, the prejudices, to which the well-disciplined neoliberal subject is motivated to subscribe. The myth perpetuated under this particular regime is that working at a long-lasting sexual romantic love relationship a relationship between two partners is the best guarantor of happiness. The figure of the queer and the figure of the single productively disrupt this narrative and remind us that the vast and open terrain of relationality should not be so drastically and detrimentally reduced to the tyranny of domestic coupledom. Now, in a sense, it does seem shocking to me that there might be the need to, to offer this line of thought, as Asian does, Um, as an urge to therapists to rethink their foundational, foundational assumptions regarding relationality. Therapists, I would maintain, should know more than most about the perverse nature of desire and the dangers of becoming too alienated from it. It's fair to say that people come into therapy because the nature of their wanting isn't working for them, So the prospect of meeting a therapist who's sitting on a stack of assumptions about how they should be wanting is frankly a dismal one. Therapists, by the way, should also be better practised than most at keeping a check on their illusions of omniscience. So as I say, the idea that therapists need to be reminded that people want differently or that people might need some support in imagining their wanting differently is a bit of a sorry state of affairs. But that said, it is absolutely true that there are some peculiar notions in psychotherapy about something called mature object love or some similar ideal that no doubt blindside the therapeutic imagination and allow a kind of clinical complacency to take hold, bringing to mind the fallacy that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If, then, psychotherapy itself is to be something of a queer encounter and my conviction that it is, or at least it has all the right ingredients to be so, then the call to question the cult of relationality is indeed a welcome one. It is also, of course, a call that resonates well beyond the clinician's consulting room. To query what modes of relationality the therapeutic frame sanctions, and more fundamentally, To question the place of the relationship itself in the formation and maintenance of our identity practices is consonant with a more inclusive political project, all of which is to the good. So, where's my critique? Well, it starts with an observation. When we think about how psychosocial relations are shaped by the systems of governance that typify neoliberal, late capitalist, postmodern, Hypermodern, structures, certain dynamics are key. Not least, the irrepressible forces of commodification and the influence of a free market fundamentalism that inevitably contort the field of human and non-human relations. Accordingly, the contemporary consumer of relationships can reject the set menu and enjoy instead the tasting menu or the pick-and-mix fantasies of the child at the sweet shop counter, perhaps. A decade or so ago, in his commentary on the look of love in Liquid Modernity, the sociologist Sigmund Bauman was writing about semi-detached couples in top-pocket relationships, suggesting that for good and for bad, the bonds of intimacy are now altogether less enduring. The idea of the top-pocket relationship is designed to invoke the norms of flexibility and ultimately disposability. Much like the principle of built-in obsolescence, that governs our technological lives, the line of thought that Bauman and many others like him explore is that contemporary relational modes are marked by the erosion of lasting bonds. So against this type of backdrop, where the durable is under threat, the cult of relationality, which is the object of critique in Adrian's work, begins to look curiously countercultural. One of the questions that was running through my mind as I was engaging with, with the chapter and again listening to the paper as we heard it was, can it make any sense at all to think of marriage as a queer category? I want to take the example of marriage as a way of extending my thoughts here and also bringing into play the focus from Anastasios' paper on violence, death, uh, exhaustion and the limits of the possible now, I feel compelled to say that it is a little odd for me to be launching a defence of marriage here. It really is not the case that I want to state that marriage is not a biopolitical tool or that it doesn't operate in the service of Marcuse's performance principle. We heard earlier in um, Ian's talk that marriage, bourgeois marriage is the disguised form of uh, prostitution. Um, you know, as an institution and indeed as an industry marriage is worthy of a thoroughgoing critique. Nonetheless, as I've engaged with Adrian's work, work on marriage is the exemplary modern institution that tames people, i find found myself stubbornly insisting on a counter-perspective. One of the ideas in Anastasios' paper, um, and it's an idea of great value, I think, concerns the limits of the possible. When the terrain is catastrophic history and this is the only terrain on which we can find ourselves today, then questions of how to live and how to do justice to the dead become both more urgent and more starkly delimited. So what I'm interested in Anastasios' explication of Adorno's idea, sorry, this is what I'm interested in, Anastasios' explication of Adorno's idea that, to quote, impossibility must be comprehended for the sake of the possible. That's quoting Adorno. Obviously, the context here is Adorno's position on the impossible necessity of thinking redemption. But the structure of the thought, impossibility must be, must be comprehended for the sake of the possible, is incredibly helpful, I think, for clinicians. And much more specifically, it allows me to undertake an impossible redemption of marriage the the challenge to bridge these two papers has been quite significant Um, so Anastasios writes despite the impossibility of contemplating things from the standpoint of redemption what is essential for Adorno is the demand placed on thought to imagine itself capable of occupying this standpoint this is why the reality of redemption hardly matters What's important is the messianic demand itself and not whether this demand is going to lead us to some kind of redemption. End quote. We are, it will be noted, a long way away from the model of therapy as thought in the service of self-betterment that I gestured to problematize above. In that model, the hardly matters would be barred from thought itself. This Hardly Matters is Adorno's Bacchettian touch that brings me on to marriage. And I am closing things now. Marriage. Quite possibly an absurdist project where an act of faith lives on or dies on among the faithless. Might it be that the I do of the marriage vow has an echo of this Hardly Matters? That the promise of permanency should be conceived of as an impossibility that must be comprehended for the sake of the possible. Moreover, might it be that the facelessness of an administered society is temporarily shocked into wakefulness when when one chooses to show one's face and speak of death? Till death do us part is an impossible thought. Freud insists that we cannot, in any meaningful sense, think our own death, and in our own at least, we're convinced by our own imma- uh, convinced of our own immortality. This much is communicated by Freud when he shares a joke with us, telling us of the husband who declares to his wife, "If one of us two dies, I shall move to Paris."
4: <laughs>
3: but whilst we do everything possible to eliminate death from life, there are certain moments when it cannot be denied. War, for Freud, is one of them. War forces us to believe in death, and in doing so, he says, it makes life interesting again. Perhaps the act of marriage is another. In the utterance, in the utterance at least, to say, I do, is to admit, I die. And therein, punctuate the state of suspension between life and death. Thank you.
0: very much indeed for that. Thank you. Can we have some comments or questions, please? Thank you. Market. and I think, for example, the idea to not much talked talk about these studies but uh, is one of the most interesting aspects I think post most British-like analysis. the idea of the schizoid uh, is, is something that would uh, quite easily provide a bridge between the two papers and certainly I would say that if one leaves out the, uh, the idea of the cure and the normal, you could say that there's writing by Winnicott and others about loneliness and singleness and harry-gunship, people like this, uh, you know, which is on a par with Beckett really, and probably uh, as bleak in its way as um, So, I mean, I'd go and make a plea for retaining actually quite um, core psychoanalytic writing in this investigation. Invite.
3: Invite. I would say that um, we're never in an either-or situation there, and if we do want psychoanalysis to be engaging with other disciplines, <laughs> um, you know, critical theory really isn't invaluable to you. Not to say that you can't find similar lines of thought in the psychoanalytic license you're, you're pointing us to. Um,
0: we
3: have to do we have
5: to change i suppose it mm. uh, the issue of the uh, failure of the socialist dream i was wondering about the whole issue about failure and exhaustion and about the need for letting go and with that letting go of mourning of yeah. the 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 death of our dreams that can open up the space for something else to come in I was going to say the the issue of the the failure of the socialist dream if we are able to accept and let go of the the, the death of that dream then that opens up the possibility for something else to come in yeah
2: I think I think there is something about I think there is something more about failure here Uh, I think we we are we are caught up not simply mourning the loss and the failure of this dream. We are caught up in a constant melancholic state of not being able to to, uh, to let go. But I think there is something about this melancholy that shouldn't be just, you know, uh, seen as pathological. You know, there is something about this melancholy that is surviving itself to think. Melancholy
6: is Greek. <laughs>
2: well, <laughs> it is actually. Yeah, we did. But I think I think That's there is something
6: not even yours.
2: Yeah, well, it's
6: not even yours.
2: Well, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> 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 Nothing is completely ours, you know, in that sense. Yeah. But I think I think there is something to think about. What is melancholy symbolizes, signifies, and also the sense. The sense you know, somebody talked about. Um, Winnicott and I was um, uh, and you know and, and the value and the value of, 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 the, of the sense of of finding a place within ourselves that is is, is private but also that it is not constantly sort of invaded and populated by the external world I mean it's it's, it's significant that there is something about that that is, is very valuable but at the same time we cannot avoid this sort. of... this this communication, this invasion. And that's why we feel exhausted. We feel exhausted by this constant attempt to respond, constantly respond to the demands that are placed before us, either maniacally or melancholically. And we need to understand why we do that.
6: Um, I'm thinking this through, so I'm not quite sure about what I want to say, but it's something about, I, I totally agree that a long-term um, romantic relationship is a social construction, and I'd like to, But it and it incorporates the, if you like, a capitalist idea of individualism and as if we don't exist if we're not in that relationship. So, somehow, um, I would like to debunk that. I know we're all debunking it on the level of marriage, but, well, not all of us, perhaps, but some of us. You know. And go back to the idea of Ubuntu, um, early African society, or, if you like, into subjectivity, in which we, at any rate, do not exist as an individual or... We are part of the we are the group, and the group is us and so um in a way that make I'm thinking it through like i said but it's it 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 in a way it it strengthens the idea of the social construction of two people right. and the possibility of controlling um society and labor through that but i I don't know how if we're thinking of of um, critical psychotherapy. How we would introduce that in the, in the therapy space, whether it's individual, a couple have come for therapy or in, in the group.
1: Like introduce that idea that you just articulated, the... Please
6: do, (laughs) yes, I'd like you to.
0: Just want
6: some clarification.
1: So, how to introduce it in the therapy space? Like, introduce that concept that you just articulated about. Um...
6: Oh, of how how would I? Because yeah. it's always there in in the back of my mind. I guess, um, yeah. I I mean, I would be going along with where you are. That quite often, this particularly struggling in a relationship, but this relationship is. Um, denying all the other, the intersubjectivity of whatever community or group we belong right. to. I suppose if we don't belong to any community or group, then that's quite difficult, but that there are all these other um, relationships going on within us that we are contributing to out there, and other areas of our lives which get forsaken perhaps because of this ideal of the long-term Romantic, really. I, I'm, how I would, re- yeah, I guess that's how I would try and bring in the community, the social, the. And of course, in an alienated society <laughs> yeah. like today, that's difficult.
1: No, that's great. That's what I had, had to do as well. So, very open conversation. Thanks. Isn't,
0: aren't you saying, Adrian, also that the difficulty of us as psychotherapists to have, as it were, no memory, no desire. When it comes to relationships, when we're working with our patients, clients,
1: mm-hmm. that really our values point in a particular direction. So, having an open conversation about that, acknowledging your values and your. Yeah? Well, I don't think we do. Oh. I don't think we do as a community. Right, right. Yeah, okay. There's, sorry, somebody here and
0: then somebody. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go, Go ahead.
1: ahead. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Um,
4: Can I go back to this notion of redemption that you brought in? Because is redemption an act of will or is it something that comes to you? And also if it's an act of will can that, can that then be translated into a social dimension? Whereas if it's something that comes to you is it a very individual experience? And if I bring that into the therapeutic environment if a client were to feel redeemed and so on I don't think it's the act of volition of the therapist it's just something that has happened in that session or situation that has been somewhat transformative but I don't know that you could ever put a handle on it yeah. so I just wondered what your so what does the Frankfurt School have to say in terms of redemption
2: I think it's it's important uh, what uh, Julie mentioned that for for Adorno, the very That's okay. the very idea of, of redemption is not hardly matters. it's the possibility of thinking from the standpoint of redemption that is important, and not the, the actual redemption itself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the fact that you know it's the fact that you're constantly being told it's impossible to do that. It's impossible to do this. It's impossible. So everything is becoming impossible. We constantly being told that you know the realm of possibility is circumscribed in a certain way, and as both as individuals and as social groups, it's, we we have stopped thinking the impossible. We cannot think anymore what is impossible because what is circumscribed as possible is is become so dominant, and I think there is something about it which is really very problematic. I think we have to dare to think the impossible for the sake of the possible. And that's what, what Adorno is asking us to do. Whether we will be redeemed or not is not important. It's about allowing ourselves to think what is impossible. Mm. And I think more and more what I find myself uh, is is being constricted in the real... What over- I mean... I keep hearing that people describe the, the Greek government as radically left and, and uh, you know, completely sort of Marxist and I think, what it proposes is a mild Keynesianism. mild Keynesianism these days has become radically left and I'm thinking these people are crazy where am I living? this is what we describe as possible and we can't dare to think beyond the realms of what is possible for us. you know, it's just, it's just amazing
3: and as you're saying that, Anastasios, so I've got a, an image of a society that no longer dreams, that no longer has a dream life. No.
2: Oh. Dream, dream is...
0: There's too many
7: questions. <laughs> I agree with you, melancholy is Greek word. Uh, it's interesting that finally somebody mentioned history today, which I thought... Without mentioning the concept of history, how can we move on? But also, I'm wondering why nobody mentioned exile when you, when we're talking here about estrangement, um, Mensheviks, Bolsheviks, in a way. And, um, and how come the word exile hasn't been mentioned with these people? And and also, is it possible that melancholy, the way Freud thought of the concept as loss, so here we have anybody that comes to, everybody that comes to therapy comes with the experience of loss. This is my opinion. But here, between 1945 and late 70s, There was an experience of exile, and also I believe uh, that I believe in life for me is to life, and in order to go to life, we have to create a bridge. There is no such a thing as impossible. Impossible become um, myth, and that's through myth we can survive.
0: Is it possible we could just take two more quick questions before asking you mm-hmm. to finally,
5: finally... I'm just wondering what the meaning of the word we is. I can't identify with it at all. I think it's really dangerous to refer to people as we because it suggests that what's being said is a metaphoric, symbolic and absolute. I really think it's dangerous and it's making me quite angry. Because I cannot see how you can tell me what I think about the impossible or the possible. I might want to debate it with you, but I certainly don't think of us as we. And I hope people in the room don't think of themselves as a simple we. It's all over the society. It's a way of taking responsibility for what we are not responsible for. And being forced to take it because there's some sanctification of the word we. Is this a post-socialist moment of some idiot kind? I think we should really, we should really think about it. I am trying to think about it. I think collectively there should be some exchange of views on it. We should abandon the word in in meetings like this. It's terribly dangerous.
0: I feel like saying not I.
8: (laughs) The first thing is, uh, is a comment. I remember back in 1986 I attended the first conference of psychoanalysis in the public sphere where the first two words spoken by Mike Rustin were my wife. And then later on there was a discussion about the situation of lesbians and gays in psychoanalysis where an IPA psychoanalyst said that he had never seen a gay analysand. Quite amazing. And now we force fast forward and, and I now feeling that I want to defend psychoanalysis because uh, something has changed in psychoanalysis. I think it's very interesting, for example, that Judith Butler, who you referred to, Adrian, is in psychoanalysis herself. With an IPA psychoanalyst, and the latest issue of the psychoanalytical notebooks, which is a quite tradition, quite different uh, tradition of psychoanalysis, pretty well says that psychoanalysis is a queer space and opens the possibility of, of queer, uh, of queering the whole tradition of psychoanalysis. Uh, and maybe this connects with the, the last question just now, which is that surely a good psychoanalyst. Would refuse any kind of ideal, including uh, the ideal of, of a good relationship, and and maybe that's why Samuel Beckett was in psychoanalysis with Wilfrid Beon for quite a long time as well. Thank you. Just quick
0: responses before tea, please. What's the time?
1: Um, I will. Yeah. Great point, um, and I believe that's why my co-author has uh, undergone psychoanalysis uh, herself, is because she has felt more accepted in that space. So I do, I, yeah, I acknowledge that. Thank you.
3: Um, nice to have myth in the in the room. Thank you for mentioning myth. Um, in terms of the we point, I agree with you in principle, but you experience yourself the impossibility of speaking without it. So at the same time, we do have to speak.
2: I think. I think I have two things to say regarding to the we thing. First of all, to say we mean I is the most recondite insult. And the second is for most people to say I today is an is impertinence. And I'll stop here.
0: Well, thank you for your
2: questions. Can we
0: thank the panel?